0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. If you've been swimming since you were a child, you probably don't think too much about it anymore. But when you take a step back, the human act of swimming is a pretty interesting, kind of weird thing. You weren't born knowing how to swim, and it's not instinctual. So, why are people so drawn to the water? And what do we get out of paddling around in it? My guest today explores these questions in her book, Why We Swim. Her name is Bonnie Soy begin our conversation today with how humans are some of the few land animals that have to be taught how to swim and when our ancestors first took to the water. We then discuss how peoples who have made swimming a primary part of their culture have evolved adaptations that have made them better at it. We discuss how swimming can be both psychically and physically restorative and how it can also bring people together using as an example a unique community of swimmers which developed during the Iraq war inside of one of Saddam Hussein's palaces. We also talk about the competitive element of swimming and how for thousands of years it was in fact a combat skill. and even took the form of a art called Samurai Swimming in Japan, and we enter a conversation with how swimming can facilitate flow and some of the famous philosophers and thinkers who tune the currents of their thoughts while gliding through the currents of water. After the show's over, you're going to want to go for a swim, but also make sure to check out our show notes, aom.is slash why we swim. All right, Bonnie Soy, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much, Brett. I'm happy to be here.
0: So you just recently published a book called Why We Swim, where you explore the history, the culture, and even like the philosophy of human swimming. What got you thinking about this topic and going in a deep dive on swimming?
1: You know, I always think about as a journalist that there's so many things to write about and and really only very few things that a, someone should write a book about <laughs> because books take so long and really are such an investment of time and energy and and just creative life. And so, you know, my parents met in a swimming pool in Hong Kong and we just had a very lifelong relationship with water and with swimming. And it's something that's That had always been a part of my life, you know, through swim team, through lifeguarding and just, you know, swimming on my own after college and having it be, of course, exercise, but also over the years then understanding that that role that swimming played in my life, you know, kept evolving. You know, at first it was something that my parents, you know, made sure we we learned so that we would not drown you know it's just a basic survival thing and then you know over the years it has taken on all of these different you know resonances and and, and meaning and and a way of finding you know well-being competition community flow all of those things that I address in the book and sort of that's how the book is structured you know the question is why we swim and the way the book is organized is these five different ways of answering that question
0: well, let's talk about, let's go back to the why we swim from like just a, the very, going all the way back to the end. It's, when you think about it, it's kind of weird that humans swim because we're, <laughs> we're land animals. Right. Um, but like, do we know when humans started saying, hey, we can get in the water and move our arms and legs and not drown?
1: The funny thing about wake is that it disappears. <laughs> so we don't really have... You know it's it's hard to pinpoint exactly when that happened for our species obviously and so where I approached it was from a sort of a little bit of an oblique angle by kind of looking for the earliest evidence of human swimming you know so it's not necessarily that that was when it happened because we've been clearly doing it for so much longer than any evidence that sort of has stuck around and and earliest evidence dates back to about 10,000 years and it's these cave paintings and what's called the cave of swimmers in the Sahara and I wanted to go to you know paleontologists to kind of see what what sort of archaeological evidence we have of animals and human swimming and I ended up going to this pretty well-known dinosaur hunter named Paul Sereno. And the funny thing with him is that he was a dinosaur hunter for most of his career. And then he stumbled upon this amazing trove of, I guess you would call it, two human civilizations that lived along the edge of this paleo lake system in the Sahara thousands of years ago they are one of the most like the biggest archaeological record of our sort of neolithic time period of of humans living by water so the waters in this paleo lake system were pretty stable over thousands of years and such that these two groups of people lived along its shores fished dived for shellfish probably swam and in fact one of the most compelling burials that he discovered his team discovered was this what they called a triple burial of the this mother and two children like with their hands intertwined and so the speculation is that they drowned and then were posed in a burial after they died
0: all right so swimming about ten thousand years ago about we don't know for sure but it sounds like the reason why humans started swimming it was basically i mean they were going for shellfish there's basically food I mean, that was the reason
1: right so i mean it makes perfect sense it's you know we that they found new sources of food they found new lands to settle i mean and and to be clear that 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 ten thousand year mark is just the earliest evidence we have it's just i mean our human swimming ability goes back much further than that we just don't have evidence of it
0: and what's interesting, you highlight this too, is that most land animals have an instinctive swimming ability. Like elephant, I've seen elephants swim, right? Or horses. Right. But humans <laughs> don't have that instinctive ability. We have to to learn it. Like, do we have any idea? And it's not just humans, it's all their, other large primates, chimpanzees, gorillas. Exactly. Do we know why mm-hmm. that is?
1: We don't really know why, but it is an interesting case to examine because when you see other animals you know, from birth, they have an instinctive ability to swim, you know, dogs, cats, they hate it, of course, but they can do it. Even bats can swim. I mean, bats can swim really well. Uh, It's just, you know, you can look up, you can really fall into a a YouTube hole, (laughs) finding animals and how they swim. So yeah, humans and other large primates are, higher order primates are unique in that we have to be taught how to swim we have to learn and 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 most terrestrial mammals can swim from birth Um, and you know you can watch dogs and cats and all kinds of animals do do it and it's strange that we alone are pretty unique in that and and so along with that ability we kind of you know pass on the stories of why it's important and and how to do it and all these different ways of you know storytelling that are so also unique to humans um and it's really i think it's strange because we are so you know tied to the land but the water calls to us and so we have to figure out how to conduct ourselves in it and how to survive in it and and also how to find you know joy and pleasure in swimming i mean it's it's something that we kind of You see kids, you see babies even just playing in the water, and you know that it's something fun and and it's something that we don't forget when we're
0: older. So swimming for humans, it's a cultural phenomenon, like it's a cultural technology that we pass on from generation to generation.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's it's a body of of cultural knowledge that we pass on, like so many other things. And sort of that's why we humans are so successful, you know, in on our planet is that we have this sort of culture gene coevolution where we pass on along, not just, you know, our genetics, but the, the knowledge of the bodies of knowledge that we acquire as, you know, larger populations, um, smarter, it makes us smarter than any one individual in a
0: lifetime could ever be. And so while humans don't have an instinct to swim, like some cultures, some societies that have developed like such a, a rich, deep culture of swimming that there is some weird, like they're. I mean, I wouldn't say evolution, but their, their bodies have adapted because they've swimmed. Because they their cultures swim so much. Any examples of that 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 stand out to you?
1: Yeah, in the book I talk about the cultures of Southeast Asia, where there are these sea nomads, where they have these populations have lived on the water in houseboats and, and subsistence fishing for many years, and. Their traditions have been such that the children learn to swim often before they learn to walk, and, and their the free divers are extraordinary. They can dive down to the bottom of the ocean and, and have spear guns and spears to catch fish. And at that depth, they're negatively buoyant, so they can walk on the bottom of the sea and hold their breath for many minutes. And it's really extraordinary how they have been able to practice and teach our bodies how to, you know, cope with the pressure underwater and, and, and also to see better. There have been studies done with the Moken people. They're one of these, I guess, tribes of, of sea nomads where the kids have really Excellent underwater vision. I mean, you and I, you know, are, haven't been <laughs> trained in this way, and so our eyes, our vision is very blurry. It tends to be most humans' vision underwater is pretty blurry. And yet, with a few sort of uh, practice sessions underwater, um, focusing on patterns, you can you can actually train your eyes to see better underwater. And those are you know those are things that you can kind of teach yourself and train yourself how to do. At least on the the, the experiments they've done with kids. And then there are the other, um, you know, not adaptations, but like the sort of genetic changes that have happened with the Bajau people. Again, another sort of C-nomadic population in Southeast Asia where their spleens have been shown to be, I think, as much as like 50% larger than a related group of sort of inland dwelling people. I think this is in Thailand, I want to say. and you know, it's not, it's not uh, acquired from diving. It's not, it's that, not that their bodies have been changing from diving. It's just that they've evolved to be better. Their spleens, of course, like when you, when you dive underwater, you part of your mammalian dive reflex is that your spleen expels all these red blood cells around your body so that you have more oxygen and become more efficient at staying underwater for longer. And with the bajau it wasn't that it was only in people who, who dove, it was that it was this entire population had this, you know, genetic, this had evolved to, to, to be better free, free diver. So I find all of these, you know, both the adaptations and also the, the evolution to be really amazing. And just, you know, these are just tiny snapshots of like, what's really, you know, what can go on with our bodies underwater.
0: All right. So we started swimming basically to survive, get food. If you live near the waters, cultures had to learn how to swim because drowning was a real danger. So they've had to create this culture of swimming. So that's one reason why we swim is survival. But there's also, as you say, you explore swimming through or why we swim through other lenses. And one of them is just, I don't know, wellness would be one. I mean, there's something about water that we're drawn to. Like people, you you feel like you're relaxed, it's soothing. So like what what goes on? Like, why is that? What goes on in our, our physiology and our psychology once we get in or around water?
1: One of the amazing things that I just really loved about researching this book was finding out all of the ways that we our brains and bodies respond to water. So just for example the sound of water just like being around it um listening to it like it it boosts our brains alpha wave activity you know, and that's that's the wavelength that's associated with calm and relaxation and creativity and and when you immerse yourself there are all these changes also that happen and when you're swimming when you're swimming of course like you know you're you're increasing And just like the blood circulation around your body and with cold water immersion that your dopamine levels go up and your metabolism speeds up and just all these really interesting changes that happen. And we feel, we know sort of instinctively that we feel so wonderful when we're around water we like we you know you, you could just you know point to evidence of why people always build houses on the beach you know they love to walk by the water they love to look at it there's something about that that does you know it does something to our brains it does something to our moods we are wired to you know respond to these sort of set points in the environment is something that the science writer Florence Williams has written and I love that phrase like that we are what you know that we're programmed to reflect respond to like blue and green set points in the environment you know it's just like that we somehow know that water is beneficial to us like and and then we want to get into it right and it's like you see all of the in the summer now it's you see everyone flocking to the beach and it's totally all the animals going to the watering hole you know it's like this it's not just for survival it's also something special
0: beyond that and in, in this section I, what i love is you, you you find these stories of people who they found like it's, that highlight the fact that water is restorative that can you know, mm-hmm. heal the body and the soul were there any ones that stood out to you in particular
1: Sure. Um, you know, in this in the well-being section of the book, a sort of anchor character there is Kim Chambers. And she is, for those of you who don't know, she's a pretty accomplished long distance swimmer. And she was the first woman to swim from the Farallon Islands, 30 miles off the coast of San Francisco to San Francisco. You know, that's like shark infested waters. And she did that But she only started swimming, you know, several years before because she had had an accident and had almost lost her leg and was rehabbing her body and relearning how to walk and and kind of started swimming as part of that rehab. And then discovered that she was just freakishly gifted at cold water, open water swimming and, and endurance swimming, like long distance marathon swimming. And so she started to swim with the Dolphin Club in San Francisco, which is a pretty historic, you know. Swimming and boating club here. And she noticed that there was more feeling in her leg, her damaged leg, and the nerves that kind of started to regenerate at a faster rate. And she was asking her doctor, she said, You know, is there, I mean, isn't there some, like, does it make sense if I have this theory, you know, that the cold water stimulates, you know, nerve? growth or nerve regeneration and so they said yeah that totally makes sense and so i kind of like went to some scientists and said like what is this you know what is this theory what is there any evidence for it and they said absolutely you know it stimulates cold water immersion and, and and exercise stimulate increased circulation around the of your blood or and oxygen around the body and can kind of reach possibly nerves that haven't you know haven't been getting as as much blood flow and because you're When you're in cold water, of course, the blood is like goes from your extremities to your core to keep you warm. And then when you have sort of warmed yourself up after the swim, they kind of that redistribution of blood goes back to your extremities again. It's sort of like a boosting that circulation that really helped her, she thinks. And this this sort of science supports that that could be true. And then she, you know, had become this extraordinarily accomplished marathon swimmer and has a bunch of world records and has joined the Explorers Club. You know, she's a real, just having swimming be this thing that helped her to basically be reborn, you know, in a pretty, in a pretty significant way, changed her life.
0: Yeah, the, the point about cold water immersion. I think it's interesting that c- cultures around the world have kind of figured out that there's might be something to cold water immersion. And they've developed rituals around. I mean, I guess in Russia, exactly. Yeah, yeah, in Russia they they cut out the thing like in the in the pond and they just like get into the water i mean like it's like right. a frozen it's like thing. a
1: shock to your system yeah. yeah in siberia yeah exactly it's like hunting lanes in the ice and go, going swimming and that like makes you feel alive <laughs> and you know you can imagine doing so i mean it's it's terrible it feels horrible but it's to to a lot of people it feels fantastic and it makes them feel like they are the most alive they've ever been you know it's sort of like this heightened acute experience of You know, in a very sensory, every sensory aspect that you could possibly imagine, you know, your eyelashes getting frozen shut. But, you know, you don't have to go to that extreme to experience the kind of euphoria of, of, you know, swimming in cold water.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, the story you just told, I think a lot of people have heard similar stories of individuals who they, they had some sort of injury or maybe they were an athlete, they were a runner or soccer player. and They had some, a big injury where they couldn't do those things anymore, Mm -hmm. but then they discovered swimming because swimming is so low impact Mm -hmm. and it changed their life. It helped them to rebuild it, get stronger.
1: Yeah. And, and it, and it makes a lot of sense when you think about how it's buoying, you know, you're not, you're not uh beholden to the forces of gravity the way you are normally and it just increases mobility and you can move your body in in a lot of different ways more so than you can on land and it kind of opens you up to i think you know you're more flexible you can get stronger and, and sort of by working different parts of your body, and like you said, it's low impact, and people do it. You know, well into their nineties. I mean, it's something that you can do. It's one of those rare sports that you can do your whole life.
0: And it, even though it's low impact, it's it can be high intensity. Like I'm not a swimmer, and but the times I get in the pool and I try to like you know I race my kid into you know, one end, <laughs> I'm winded. I'm like that wasn't very far. That was maybe twenty five <laughs> feet, and I'm out of breath.
1: Yeah, you're you are propelling yourself using your your upper body and you're you know, you're kicking and it's just like it is a whole body exercise. I think that's part of the reason it feels so good. You're using your whole body. And, um, you know, it's it takes you out of your normal state of being you know i think that's also like a huge part of it
0: and the other the other thing that i have trouble with you know you said it's your whole body like the, you have to think about your breathing too yes
1: for like, sure and i,
0: I don't do that i'm I, i'm terrible at timing <laughs> my breathing when i'm swimming
1: you gotta work on your rhythm you gotta
0: work on. i have no i have no rhythm <laughs> We've, we've
1: we've we've identified the problem. Yes, uh, rhythm is huge when it comes to swimming, not just with breathing, but also with your pacing of like all of your limbs. And you know you have to get all of the pieces moving in the right coordination. Otherwise, you're not really moving yourself through water in a way that feels easy. And I think that's one of the great tricks of swimming.
0: We're gonna take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, and now back to the show. All right. So swimming can be restorative. It can, as you said, relaxes you, can reduce your your heart, your pulse, you know, basically lower your blood pressure. And then it can be a great workout. Um, but then another reason we swim is there's a community aspect of it. Um, so there's cultures around the world where swimming is just something you do. I think you highlight a few of those, like in Japan and Iceland, like. Matter, of course, like the kids have to learn. You take swimming lessons, right. not, not a question. So there's a community aspect there. But I thought it was interesting in this book, you you highlight or you focus on this community that built up around swimming that happened in Baghdad, in Saddam, one of Saddam Hussein's palaces. <laughs> What's the story of the swimming community that, that ended up here in one of Saddam Hussein's luxurious palaces in Baghdad?
1: This is such an interesting story. I mean, this is one of my favorites just because it's so unexpected. So, in 2008, this foreign service guy named Jay Taylor gets dispatched to Baghdad and he's a lifetime lifetime foreign service guy. He was tasked with restarting the Fulbright cultural Ex- exchange program in in Iraq. And so, he, you know, at the time, Baghdad was pretty getting a lot pretty a lot of Shelling, you know, it was just a lot of combat activity. And so the green zone was centered around uh, one of Saddam Hussein's palaces. It was called the Republican Palace. And, you know, he had like many dozens of palaces around the country. And, you know, they all, all had swimming pools. You know, imagine just all these opulent pools in the desert. It's just like the ultimate in luxury and just had, you know, diving boards and just these Outdoor chandeliers, and so people who were, you know, working in the green zone could use this pool, and so it was became one of these things that you know to to it's a strange you know trying to adhere to normalcy in a time of of war, and so they he started swimming. He was a had been a lifeguard, taught swimming lessons for his whole life, and he started to swim, and then over time he began to teach swimming lessons to know, peacekeep, you know, peace keep, you know, peacekeepers, translators, his own colleagues, locals who were working on the ground, soldiers that who, for whatever reason, you know, had not really learned to swim or had wanted to be better at swimming. And so he eventually this community came up around the pool and then and then when the when the green zone got moved to a new compound into the pool there. And I mean, this, the Baghdad swim team grew to like 250 people over those two years. And, you know, people come in, people leave, people get moved, their their mission ends. But it was this really special, you know, many United Nations of people from all over the world, um, Ecuador, Mexico, Libya, Lebanon, just people, Madagascar, who who, you know, just came together for this, like period of time you know once twice three times a week four times a week where they would be able to kind of forget everything and just find the peace in the community in the water and maybe they didn't see each other you know maybe they wouldn't even recognize each other out sort of out in the compound or out and about in their sort of daily work but in the water that they found this sense of calm and buoyancy and you know something that like for 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 a few minutes, they could forget where they were and just kind of be.
0: No, what I loved about that story was, I mean, how I mean, it was really endearing because like you had these basically adults who you know basically I'm not a very good swimmer, mm-hmm. but everyone was incredibly supportive. Like, and I just right. thought that was I like that. It was heartwarming. Yeah,
1: and it was a team effort. Like everybody, no matter what their skill level, they started out like blowing bubbles. They started out doing streamlines. They started out you know treading water floating and learning just all of the basic lessons of what it is to be safe and and then eventually become quite accomplished swimmers in the water yeah it's just like and and coach Jay is just a really special guy and, and in fact tonight he he's back in and he lives in, in maryland and Tonight I'm I am guest starring in in his wife's book club for Why We Swim, <laughs> which is just you know full circle, right?
0: No, what I thought was interesting you you did a follow up with some of these people that were part of this this swim team, and it seems like like swimming has become a part of these people's lives. Like some people went on to teach their kids how to swim, I and mean, they said I yeah. wouldn't have been able to do that if I hadn't been in Baghdad
1: yeah it's and right it's just such an extraordinary and such a unique and and intriguing story of like how this came to be and um you know and and the team sort of atomized after that because you sort of come but i think thinking about uh, people from all over the world coming together for a short period of time in this pool and then kind of atomizing again to to other parts of the world i think there's something really beautiful about that too
0: Right, so another lens you use to explore swimming is this idea of competition. So we're going to talk about you know sort of Olympic swimming. But before we do, there's another aspect of competition, and that's combat. And you highlight and sort of go through the history for thousands of years, swimming has been a martial skill in cultures around the world. What are some examples of cultures where they've taught swimming specifically as a, as a martial skill?
1: Well, the Romans did it. Uh, the Egyptians did, Chinese. Julius Caesar was reputed to be an excellent swimmer. <laughs> you know, just that you can imagine, I think there was like some, uh, uh, actually, I, I want to look, I want to get this right. I think it's Assyrian, like just these old, very old relief carvings of, of swimmers who are crossing um, in battle, you know, crossing a body of water in battle. And it's just really, like, it's it goes back to time immemorial that, that, that there's records of, of, of warriors swimming and, and, and mythology, too, of, of people who, or characters who were able to triumph in some battle because they were able to swim. And it makes you know, it makes a lot of sense that those, if you think about a lot of martial arts, they kind of carry over now to become a practice that is not for war, but but there's a but there's a something to be gained from that practice anyway. You know, so if you think about in in Japan, uh, I, I write about. Samurai swimming. And so samurai swimming is basically Nihoneho is the the sort of Japanese classical swimming condition. It's basically the Japanese swimming martial art. And if you go back to the Japanese feudal period, where samurai clans were protecting different parcels of land around Japan, and depending on where you were in the archipelago, you could be on the coast, you know, with the ocean, or you could be on a lake or a river. And so different Samurai clans had to devise different techniques and different schools of swimming that were specializing in the techniques that would be useful in those bodies of water. So imagine, like, certain kinds of strokes that are really great for cutting through waves that are breaking on the shore, and then you're, you know, you're sighting your. Enemy coming, or if you're in a very tranquil lake and there's, you have to be able to see the enemy approaching, or that you have to sneak up on the enemy without creating any ripples to show that that you're coming. And so there were techniques described of treading water in a really quiet way, you know, up to your eyes, while wearing a lot of armor, <laughs> and and that the, and those practices and those techniques and those schools of swimming, there those traditions continue today, you know, they're it's the same kind of like master and student a hierarchy where you spend years training under the same master and there are different signs and like on, on a cap that you'd wear of you know what your sort of rank what ability what skill mastery you had accomplished over the years and um you would have like a mark or a stripe or something on your cap that would indicate how much you had mastered of the skills that were part of that school of swimming and so actually in the olympics the tokyo olympics that were supposed to be held this summer they were planning japan was planning on doing a demonstration of nihon eho and i hope that the olympics will be on next year because i I, it it just sort of a way to reintroduce it to the world of this these foundational traditions of swimming that actually really did inform the japanese national teams like you know growth and and extreme success in the 20th century and i think it was the los angeles olympics that were you know the debut of the japanese national team being so dominant you know and it was part in part informed by these traditions of samurai swimming
0: yeah i thought that was interesting about the same because I, I never heard of samurai swimming and i thought it was interesting how it carried over it went from like a, an actual martial art to sort of mm-hmm. a, a Practice martial art, then it carried over into competitive swimming.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and and what is competition really like? It's it's all of the urgency of battle and survival, sort of subsumed into a race. Right. It's all of that fight or flight energy and excitement, without the threat, of course, of of life or death situation. But that that's what we get from sports. That's what we get from competition. Is is that thrill? in a sort of self-contained, uh, circumscribed way.
0: Yeah, and speaking of competition, you know, talking about the Olympics, I mean, one of my favorite events to watch when I do watch the Summer Olympics is is swimming because <laughs> it, it, w- what I love about it is that oftentimes the result of a race can be just like a hundredth of a millisecond. I mean, like the stakes are always incredibly close because I mean, just one little thing Cannot, your
1: fingernail, yeah, your fingernail.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, so, I mean, what do you what have you found with swimming that sort of heightens or you know can sh- highlight the the promises and perils of of competition?
1: I mean, I you know it is funny that swimming, when the Summer Olympics come around every four years, is the most watched sport. I mean, people love it, and and the rest of the year, at least in the United States, they don't care. Yeah, no about one cares. It. <laughs> I don't know. It's strange to me that um, that is. I don't know what it is that's so why the olympics specifically maybe it's just that these swimmers who they don't hear about or don't follow the rest of the sort of four years outside of that four-year cycle suddenly are together on the world stage and they're able to watch them you know turn through all of the strokes you know fly back breast free and just all the different permutations and there's just this you know the way their olympics are presented is very heroic i i mean i i think swimming is so beautiful to watch and Maybe there is some aspect of that basic survival, life and death thing that is lurking in people's, the back of people's minds. I don't know. I mean, it's interesting to kind of, I I would love to know what people who tune in only every four years to swimming have to say about it. Like, why don't you, if you love it, you know, if you love it, watching it now, what, what is it about it that, you know, draws you to it to more than any other sport? You know, it's interesting. I'm,
0: I'm curious myself. (laughs) Right. Well, so you mentioned, um, you know, in high school when you were a young adult, you were a competitive swimmer, and then in the book, you talk about how you, you've, you've gotten back into it in middle age. How has that changed your experience with swimming?
1: I, you know, I loved competing when I was a kid. I, it was, you know, it was super fun. It was exciting, and it was. I really loved my strokes were breaststroke and the IM and backstroke. I was never a freestyler, but I kind of wanted to see what it would be like to start competing, you know, as like a 40 year old. So I joined the Master's team and same same time, my six year old joined a swim team, and that's in the book. and it was like this weird moment of observing him and it was like this reflection of myself like when I was a kid, like joining the swim team for the first time. and then me doing it now it was just it was strange. It was like, you know what? It, in many ways, it felt the same. But also, what I ended up realizing is that I love now just swimming practice with my friends. You know, it's just, it's really fun. And I have competed a few times with the team, and my coach is always like on, on me to compete more. But I find that I don't actually want that. I don't need it. I don't, competition is not, doesn't have the same allure for me that it did when I was younger. And you know, I've talked about how the role of swimming in my life has changed over time. And now I, I really do feel like the community is such a huge part of it because I swim, you know, in normal pre-pandemic days, I would swim four days a week. You know, I'd go surfing the other mornings and I would go regularly to these practices to, to, to swim alongside my friends. And I would have also the more sort of like post-school like, kid drop-off thing and and go to the pool and, and work out on my own, but I, I would always see the same people, you know, it's just like, that's your community, that's your tribe, and there's something really comforting about it, that routine that's sort of been imploded in this, you know, in this very extraordinary period that we're living through right now, but I have been fortunate And that I have been able to keep surfing. I've been able to swim in open water here in San Francisco Bay. And so it's like adjusting to a new normal, you know, and and certainly we're going to be in this for a while. And so it's interesting how all of my swimming friends have adapted, you know, to try to figure out how to get what they need, you know, in this time.
0: So it sounds like competitive swimming in middle age has brought you back to the community aspect Swimming. Yeah, for I think, sure. I think it's, yes, that's a good. I think that's interesting. He you, he you, you started off competing like I'm going to destroy you to like oh no I just I want to be with these people. You're my friends. I like yeah, I you're my friends.
1: It. I like my friends. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, it's, I think
0: some people don't realize there's there is like a, a com, there's a community aspect of competition that I think we often think of competition being as being divisive, but it's mm. also you know, it can, it's a great way of bringing people together too.
1: Yeah, you have a team and 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 even if you might have rivals on other teams like that you still have a camaraderie with those people.
0: So the, the final lens you use to look at swimming is this idea of flow, which is suiting because like, you know, water flows, but I love what you did. You highlight famous thinkers, philosophers, writers who swam because we have, we've on the hot podcast and on the website, we've highlighted, you know, famous thinkers, writers who were walkers, right? That they, mm, So mm-hmm. Kant and Nietzsche, Thoreau, but you also highlight, there was also scientists, thinkers, writers who, instead of walking, they swam. Who, who are some of those guys? Well,
1: a lot of people don't realize that Thoreau swam every morning when he was at Walden. So that was part of his, his whole routine there of of being, you know, in the woods and and being one with the world and all that. Um, and he said he wrote that it was like one of the best things that he did. And so he swam in the pond. I love this question because it like there are all these secret swimmers who come out of the woodwork uh, writers. Yeah. You know, Oliver Sachs was famously a swimmer, a great swimmer, and he swam great distances. And I love this. There's a story I, I love that he told in The New Yorker once where he used to live well, he lived in New York and, and many, many years ago he was swimming around city island in the bronx and he saw that there was a house like a cottage for sale and so he got out of the water and was wearing a swim trunks he goes in he surprises the realtor gets shown around the house and then he leaves gets back in the water and he has just bought a house (laughs) it's just (laughs) great He just you know mid-swim has somehow acquired a home and you know he wrote very beautifully and poignantly of his relationship with water you know how he when he got in the water he felt you know he was a stutterer like he felt all of these things kind of slipping away and he was just like this graceful endurance animal like he would talk about how his dad had like this whale-like bulk and and you know he was like a big guy and then when he got in the water he was just so graceful and uh you know elegant um, and I think a lot of people have that transformation I think water can do that for you uh, other writers who are swimmers Zadie Smith is a swimmer Haruki Markami is a swimmer as well and I recently found out that Yo-Yo Ma is a swimmer and that just like delighted me so much because it's like I admire his his music and musicianship and just amazing way of being in the world like a very generous human and the fact that he's a swimmer made me really excited
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and as you highlight like swimming there's something about swimming that can get you into that flow state or that writers mm-hmm. or artists or constantly where yeah. everything just seems effortless where you lose track of time and i guess i mean i i imagine swimming is great for that because i mean you, there, you have to get that rhythm right there that there's that, mm-hmm. that flow but then also you have to you, it's almost like an isolation tank when you're in the water yes you can't yeah. hear you the only thing you have is your thoughts
1: yeah and and so it's this time that you have with yourself your own mind however deep and strange and quirky that is and you have time to meditate on that you have time to explore like the connections that your mind is just making in ways that are i think influenced by the water itself i mean just the vocabulary that we use to describe thought, like how it flows, how it you know things wash over us, ideas, you know, like float around and then get connected, and you know, drifting thoughts, like all of this 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 language that we use to talk about how we think and in an ideal state um there, it's it's watery language it's aquatic language it's aquatic imagery and I don't think that that's a coincidence you know um and so I in the this section the final section of the book on flow I make some of these connections and I you know I turn to the poets to kind of like explain and evoke all of the things that they do so beautifully about swimming about water about like sort of life and death and sort of how we move through the world and and how water can help us do that.
0: No, yeah, that water imagery within the mind, when you said that it made me think of Bruce Lee, you know, that mm-hmm. idea of exactly. mind, mind like water, right?
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Have you seen that, um, the documentary?
0: No, no, no. We did a, we did a interview about a Bruce Lee biography that came out last year and we got into that, but what does the documentary talk about?
1: It's called like water. Um, and oh, okay. it's about, uh, it's a uh, ESPN 30 for 30. It just came oh, out. I I'll have to check that out. It's so great. Yeah. It's fantastic. And I thought about it because it was, he talked so much about, you know, how, Water was a metaphor for all of these things in his life, and and he really was such a connector. And I think that, you know, I don't know what his experience with swimming was. It that the documentary does not go into that, but just how again the language of connection, the language of merging, and also about the philosophy of being like water. What does that? What does that mean? Is really a terrific documentary film that I just loved watching.
0: Did you write most of this book while you were swimming? Uh, that's
1: a great question i I wrote the flow section which is you know again this final section of the book which is quite different from the first four sections which are much more reported um you know character based about stories right about other people and sort of amazing adventures and and history and all that the final section is a little bit different because it kind of pulls all of these threads through uh, together but but is more ideas oriented and so i you know, it's a different kind of thinking, right? It's a different kind of writing. And so I spent a lot of time in the pool. I would get in in the mornings and be like, all right, what am I thinking about while I'm swimming? It really, it it did. It was like this very strange, like meta, 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 like, you know, and then I would get out of the pool and I would like type things into my phone and then I would go home and then I would write them. So I did do quite a bit of that last section of the book, write it in my head when I was swimming for sure.
0: Well, Bonnie, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and the rest of your work?
1: My website, com. It's uh, B-O-N-N-I-E-T as in Tom, S as in Sam, U-I.com. And I'm on Twitter as well.
0: All right, Bonnie Soy, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks so much.
0: My guest today was Bonnie Soy. She's the author of the book, Why We Swim. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about her work at our website, bonniesoy.com. And soy is spelled T-S-U-I. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash why we swim, where you can find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years. Got some articles about swimming on there, so check that out. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank Thank you please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Remind you not only to listen to the A-Win podcast but put what you've heard into action.